Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Baseball fans, BetMGM is giving you the chance to win a prize every day during the baseball season. Step into the batter's box for BetMGM Swing for the Fences free-to-play game. Pick any area of the strike zone and take your best swing. If you get a single, double, triple, or home run, you'll receive a prize. Smash a home run to collect a bonus bet on us. Just log into your BetMGM Sports account to get started. Then visit your promotion section to access the Swing for the Fences free-to-play game. You'll score a prize if you hit a single, double, triple, or home run. There's nothing more exciting than going yard. So swing for the fences with the king of sportsbooks. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. Must be 21 plus and present in Ohio. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards vary depending on the market and expire 24 hours from issuance. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Hello everyone and welcome to Slash Film Daily for... Wednesday, May 5th, 2021. On today's episode, we're going to discuss what we've been up to at the water cooler. This is Slash Film Editor-in-Chief Peter Serretta. And joining me on today's podcast is Slash Film Managing Editor Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. Weekend Editor Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. Senior Writer Ben Pearson. Hey, what's going on? And Writer Squire Tran Bui. Hey, everyone. And Chris Evangelista. Hi. Okay. <laughs> Something new from you, Chris. Just a Hi. Was it? I don't know. That's all I have. That's all I have to give you today. So hi. <laughs> How have things been going, Chris? Uh boy, I feel really on the spot right now. I, I know. Um, <laughs> uh, things are fine, I guess. Let's let's get on with the show, shall we? Oh, okay. And not and not talk about Chris. You're like, take the spotlight off me yes, right now, please. Quick. Please. Okay. Let me, let me hide in my corner where I belong. Okay. Um, <laughs> let's move into what we've been doing uh, this past week. For me, it's been filled with uh, theme parks, and uh, that's why I haven't been on the show much. I went to the grand reopening of Disneyland. It was closed for, I think, 412 days. Unprecedented. I think the, the nearest it had been closed before that was like one or two days or something <laughs> insane. Uh, but you know, for obvious reasons of why it was closed and, uh, they have just reopened and I was there on this historic reopening day, uh, filming a video for ordinary adventures and also, you know, just 
enjoying it myself. And uh, I'll say it was really emotional going back in there. When we stepped through the gates, the entire main street was just lined with cast members from from all, you know, not just main street from all over the park, just welcoming guests back. And like, I don't know, it was just cool to see. All the all these people that you know had not have had their jobs for the last year, you know, back and they're, I don't know, they really seemed happy to be there. And uh, Disneyland is operating at twenty five percent capacity, which to me is still sounded like it was going to be a lot of people. But every ride was like five to ten minute wait. Some were walk ons. Like it felt like there was parts of the park that you you could look in an area and there was nobody within sight. It was. Uh, it really felt like Disneyland from 10, 15 years ago. If you went to like Disneyland on a weekday, um, and it, uh, I don't know, it, it was strangely felt once it got back in there, it strangely felt like it hadn't been a year that like it was, you know, <laughs> like hanging out with an old friend and it re- really felt like I was just there yesterday. Anyways, we, we have this whole video. I'm not going to bog this podcast down with all, all the theme park stuff. Uh, but I'll link it in the show notes if you want to see that. And um, yeah, it was a an emotional and fun day. And it's interesting to see how Disney is adapting because they're doing things different than they're doing over in Disney World, how they're doing uh, character interactions and stuff. And it's, uh, I don't know, I think they're going to keep some of these things. Like they have some of the characters just hanging out in their world. Like normally at Disneyland, you would have to go if you wanted to uh, say meet Mickey Mouse, you'd have to go to Mickey Mouse's uh, meet and greet spot, which is his town, ta- his house in Toontown. And you'd have to wait in this long queue that goes through his house for like an hour to go meet Mickey. And then you'd get like five seconds with him. Now, you know, you can just see Mickey like in the front front yard of his house. And he's like, you know, uh, you know, watering the plants or something and then you, you can have more of a uh i don't know extended interaction with the, the characters it's, i don't know go check out the video uh and yeah see that and the other thing i did is i went back to disneyland for may the 4th this was yesterday for those of you who don't know may the 4th is the official star wars holiday and i spent the day with kitra in batu which uh i'm not sure if you guys know this but galaxy's edge opened about two years ago, but this is the first time that people uh, on either coast were able to spend Star Wars Day in Galaxy's Edge. So it's kind of interesting because, you know, both of the parks were shut down on last May 4th and uh, they've released a new legacy lightsaber. They released uh, this Skywalker uh, legacy lightsaber uh, limited edition set, which came with the the two lightsabers from the end of rise of Skywalker and it, they were kind of wrapped in the way that Ray wraps them. So, and, uh, it came in this box. That's kind of reminiscent of the box that, uh, I guess Maz Kanata where, where she, she finds the, one of the sabers, but the, the new one is the Leia like lightsaber, which is just really cool. And I'd never realized until I got to see it in person. Cause it only is in the movie, you know, for, mere seconds and you, you only see it on screen like in close-up for like probably a few frames but it's interesting that how they chose to design that saber because the top of the saber is very reminiscent of luke's saber it has that kind of return of the jedi luke top and then the bottom 
is very reminiscent of Ben Solo's saber. So it's kind of um, a combination of her her brother and her son. And uh, I don't know. It's, it's a very cool saber. We also made a video about uh, that and spending the whole day in Batu And uh, there was a, lot, a bunch of new merchandise and such. So go check that out. I'll put that in the show notes. Brad, what have you been up to? Uh, well, today I started doing a morning radio show. Um, my uh, my friend Ben founded uh, a charity organization, which I think I've talked about on the show before, uh, here in town that benefits a lot of local uh, organizations and departments and just um, programs that deserve you know extra money to help them along. And occasionally he's appeared on this local radio station to promote certain uh, events that we've been putting on and uh, things like that. And he was offered the opportunity to do a morning radio show uh, every other Wednesday. And since he and I have our own podcast together and we just have like a history of doing stuff like this um, kind of as a duo, he asked me if I wanted to co-host it with him. Uh, and so uh, worked it out with you guys to leave for a little bit on uh, every other Wednesday morning. And today we had our first episode. Uh, the show is called Ben, Brad and Beyond. And it's basically just a morning talk radio show that's on at uh, 9 a.m. Central. Uh, there's be a link in the show notes of where you can watch like the first Facebook live stream for the episode today. Uh, and then you, you'll also be able to see like what um, where you can listen to it other, otherwise. And so it's just basically a, a, a talk morning show where we just like address a variety of different pop culture subjects from uh, movies and TV to, you know, other things that like we talk about on the water cooler from time to time, like snacks, maybe music, technology, all that kind of stuff. And just, uh, very conversational, very off the cuff and, uh, loose. And it was, uh, it was just a good time. So it's just a little fun thing that we're, we're doing and, uh, we'll see where it goes from here. Yeah. I'll put the link in the show notes. If you want to go listen to Brad's uh, new radio show, and uh, let's move on to what we've been reading. And for for once, it's, it's rare that I'm reading anything. Not that I'm reading much. It's, you know, it's, it's basically what I've been reading is one of those tabletop art books. And this is the art of Star Wars Galaxy's Edge. Uh, this was written by Amy Radcliffe, uh, one of our friends. So, uh, you know, disclaimer there. I'm also, as you know, a very big uh fanatic of not only star wars but star wars galaxy said so i was excited to get my hands on this because i love these art of books and these usually show you how the development of a movie or thing evolves over from concept uh through the time to its execution and it's all through the concept art and galaxy's edge as you as you know went through many iterations and it was cool to see a lot of the things that didn't make the cut the ideas other rides there was gonna be like the speeder bike ride they were gonna have this bounty hunter chase ride uh stores that didn't make the cut um there's a lot in there i actually did a video about it on ordinary adventures uh, that was posted on slash home um and i know brad did a review of the book on slash home we'll link those in the show notes but uh i i really like the book I if I have one criticism of the book is I almost wish Amy got more interviews with the Imagineers and the artists, because at times there's just like cool things, like cool art of things. And then there's like one sentence on the bottom and it doesn't really tell you like, oh, how did that evolve? Why did that get cut? Why did you know, I wish there was like more information and I'm guessing Imagineering 
probably nixed some stuff. I don't know that, but I'm just guessing they're a very secretive organization. I'm guessing they didn't, you know, want some of the reasons of why stuff didn't make it or how it evolved or, you know, there's ride systems that they're probably going to use for other rides. So maybe they don't want to talk about it. But Brad, you like I said, you wrote a whole review. You wrote a whole review of this on the site. Uh, what did you think? Yeah, the the art in this book is incredible, as it is with all of these you know kinds of books, especially the Star Wars ones. Um, and I had the same kind of frustration that that, that you did because there are some. Um, there's especially one big spread that's like seven or eight pages um, of this entire like nightclub scene that would have been like a a bar and like um uh a, a spice what was it what was it called yeah yeah the calicori club yeah it was the twilight uh spice den yeah, spice den yeah and it was supposed to be like a sit down restaurant experience it seemed like a more more of like an uh upper class kind of kind of dining experience and there's tons of art in it it looks amazing and it just didn't happen and they don't talk much about like the you know the logistics behind it the decisions that were made not to and that's the case with a lot of the stuff that they put in here that isn't part of the park. And I just wish that there was a little bit more of a dive into talking about, you know, why they made a decision not to do certain things. Cause every now and then there's like a little bit of a hint of like one specific, you know, logistical thing that they thought, well, this probably won't work because of this reason and, um, and, and whatnot. But I, yeah, I wish that there was just a little bit more of a deep dive into that facet of the park, but of course, you know, Disney secrecy and whatnot. And, you know, I think some of the stuff too, it's, it's like, some of it kind of speaks for itself as to why maybe it didn't happen. Um, you know, and so, some of it has to do with like, I think you're probably talking about, there was this creature that you could board and travel throughout the land. And it, the creature would have to choose you to ride it because not many people would get a chance to ride it. And it, it just sounded like a logistical cluster of that would not work. Yeah. Cause it was meant to be like interactive and they like, they probably only would have had like a handful of people that could have ridden it each day. You know, um, and the same thing with like the, the that goes hand in hand with that. They had, they had like a whole area with like a bunch of different creatures that people could like, you know, see almost like a, a small Star Wars zoo. Um, and so, so yeah, it's it's a cool book to definitely see. And but it, I, it makes me hope and wish that some of these ideas they will expand and continue to like beef up Galaxy's Edge because it, it it feels like it could be something even more epic than what it already is. Yeah, I think that's another part of why they, they don't want to talk about some of the stuff, because some of the stuff I think will eventually make its way into there. Like we saw some of the entertainment, like these stunt shows that were kind of cut at the last minute. And I think we'll eventually see those. And some of there's actually places in Galaxy's Edge that are empty. They're empty shells of buildings that could end up being some of these these stores they also designed a bunch of um like black spire outpost and but two locals like different alien species and stuff like that and there aren't any of those walking (laughs) around the park at all yeah that's kind of that was my biggest disappointment when i first went there was there was no real droids roaming and no aliens like you could have had like one or two cast members dressed in as like a twilight or something make it feel in universe but yeah um, but I, I think even with all those criticisms, we both recommend checking this out. For sure. Okay. Uh, let's uh, move on to Jacob. Jacob, what have you been reading? Uh, I'm reading Empire of Pain by Patrick Radenkeefe. This is a writer who wrote the book I talked about a few weeks ago called uh, uh, Say Nothing about the, the troubles in Northern Ireland. And I, that was a book I raved about. This is his new book that just came out last month. And it's about uh, the Sackler family, the 
the the uh, billionaire family that essentially invented modern medical advertising and created uh, OxyContin and started the opioid crisis and how they've been one of America's most secretive billionaire families who are responsible for hundreds of thousands of deaths and millions of, of addicts and refuse to take responsibility for it. And the book uh, tracks their dynasty from, you know, when they were from the patriarch of the family who was the, the son of immigrants who has this kind of incredible life story. And you start realizing that just because you're a hard worker and you get a lot done doesn't make you a good person. <laughs> and it goes from there. Um, it's early for me. Yeah, I still have a lot to go in the book. It's, it's a brick-sized thing. Uh, but it's very much this infuriating but also engrossing epic tale of the American dream gone horribly wrong. And I've spoken about Keith's you know, work before with Say Nothing, but also his podcast, Wind of, Wind of Change. Uh, I just think he's an incredible writer and an incredible journalist. And Empire of Pain feels like a really definitive book about a family who would much rather not be exposed to the spotlight, considering all the pain they've caused to people all over the world. Uh, so it's Empire of Pain. Uh, I really recommend it based on what I've read so far and based on the fact that I think Keith is just one of the top tier writers and journalists alive today. Jacob, H- I want to I want to tell oh. you real quick. Um, uh, on May 11th, HBO has a new Alex Gibney documentary called The Crime of the Century, and it's it's all about this. And they actually interview the, the writer you're talking about, and he, he's like, he guides you pretty, pretty much through the whole documentary. So you should check that out. Oh, man, I'm going to have to hold off on that. I want to finish the book first. But yeah, I feel like I feel like if, if you don't want to read a 550-page book about the <laughs> about Cotton and the opioid crisis and the scumbags who caused it, uh, then yeah, look out for that doc. Uh, you say it's called Crime of the Century, Chris? Yeah, it's 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 two parts. It's like four hours long. I I, I watched it over the weekend. There's the first part's two hours, the second part two hours. So May eleventh on HBO Max. Yeah, well, not fun material, but probably necessary material. So that's what I've been reading. Okay, let's move on to HT. What have you been reading? I've been reading Doctor Who: The Writer's Tale by Russell T Davies, and Russell T Davies is the showrunner for Doctor Who from 2005 when the revival took place to 2010. And uh, this book goes into his his writing process as well uh, over the over the um, length of him overseeing the final season and the last few David Tennant specials of the show. And it takes place over like a correspondence, an email correspondence between him and Benjamin Cook, who is a reporter slash journalist for Doctor Who magazine. And it's a it's a really great read. In addition to being just this really fun. Um, trove of uh, fun facts and trivia behind the scenes of what was happening in that final season um, for uh, that he was on, which was season four. It um, talks about his his writer's process and in a way that he just kind of bears it all and talk. It's mostly him talking about how he's missed most of his deadlines and trying to figure out how to reconcile his creative sort of aspirations and ideas for the show and like such wild um, ideas that you get for Doctor Who with the limited budget that uh, he gets from BBC and trying to just sort of navigate that. And it's really fascinating. It's a really great read, uh, regardless of whether you're a Doctor Who fan. Of course, it's a much more <laughs> rewarding read if you're a Doctor Who fan, but it was a really interesting just sort of insight into the writer's process, especially a writer who is uh, at the head of a show that at the time when he was running, it was just like the biggest thing, one of the biggest things in the world at the time and uh, having to be the lead writer as well as, you know, be the executive producer and be on 
and have his hands on every part of the process. It, it's great. It's, so that's uh, The Writer's Tale. Um, and I, there's actually two versions of this. I'm reading the, the Writer's Tale, the final chapter, which is the original version, uh, in addition to 300 extra pages of material from when he was corresponding during the, the final stretch of his time on Doctor Who and into the Matt Smith era. And uh, it's, uh, so the whole thing is about like 700 pages, which is a hefty read, but uh, I would recommend, yeah, for sure, reading like the, the final version, which was published in 2010. HD, can I read this being where I am in Doctor Who right now? Uh, you know, I'm, I'm only in just finished season three with you as part of our, our podcast. There are some spoilers, so I would recommend reading this once you get through season four. Okay, fair enough. This has been sitting in my Amazon cart for like weeks now, to be honest. Yeah, no, it's a lot of fun. It's just like Russell T. Davies is a very cheeky guy, so he makes a lot of jokes about um, people's butts, people's thighs, uh, Stephen Moffat's thighs. So it's a lot of fun. I love how while Brad and I are basically looking at picture books, Jacob and HD are trying to outdo themselves with like 700,000 page books of text. It's a lot of text. Yes. Okay. Let's move on to what we've been watching. Uh, Ben, what have you been watching? Uh, Jacob and I watched the Mitchells versus the machines, which I think uh, both Chris and Brad have spoken about before. So we probably won't go too long on this, but this is, I think uh, last time I checked was the number one movie on Netflix um, over the past few days. And uh, it's the animated movie that uh, has Lord and Miller on as, um, as producers and uh, is directed by a guy named Mike Rianda. And uh, I didn't love this movie as much as everybody seems to. I, I love the look of it um, for the most part. I think the animation is pretty fantastic. But there are, I feel like I'm sort of caught in this weird in-between uh, age bracket with this movie where it seems to, half the movie seems to be, well, okay, so let me back up for one second. The, the film the central relationship in the film is between a father and daughter. And the father is like depicted as, you know, somebody who is completely um, incompetent when it comes to technology. And the daughter is somebody who grew up using her cell phone constantly and is uh, an aspiring filmmaker. And, um, you know, is very much tapped into, you know, online culture and, and living her life through, social media in what appears to be a healthy way in this movie. Um, I, I feel like this film is sort of split in half where half of the jokes are aimed at an audience that can relate to uh, the old man who like is completely uh, allergic to all things tech related. And then the other half where the movie just gets really manic and uh, uses actual um, you know, YouTube footage and uh, does some really interesting things formally, but is just like overstimulation, you know, dialed up to 11. And, and that is supposed to be sort of more on the wavelength of this younger character, this daughter character. Um, but I feel kind of like in between those two, like I was kind of annoyed at a lot of the, the um, you know, hyper stylization stuff that surrounded the the filmmaking aspect of it, like the the character's uh, aspiring filmmaking. She makes YouTube videos with her dog and, um, you know, does all these, there, there are constantly like little rainbows and like, you know, pieces of animation that, um, that are intended to sort of highlight certain emotions or, or certain sequences or whatever. And then those were fine, but the movie often tips into, um, you know, these like full page, uh, it like pauses for a second to just 
crank the dial all the way up in terms of style. And I just found those to be um, more grating than endearing, which I think they're supposed to be for, for people of her age. And then the, the old guy, like, Oh, I don't know what a computer is. I can't use any of this stuff. It just feels like it's, you know, 20 years old in terms of comedy. Like, what are we doing here? This, this person, you know, the age wise uh, to have a daughter, this age, um, this guy, it, it just did not seem like it seemed like a sitcom dad from like 1992 or something instead of, uh, you know, somebody who is supposed to be the, the age that he is. So um, I sort of had a little bit of a pushback when it came to uh, the the film's humor. I think there, there are some really great jokes in here. Um, and I love the the uh, the general look of the movie when it's not like um, super, super over the top and stylized. I also kind of, you know, while I'm in the mood of, to, of, of dunking on this movie or whatever you want to call it, uh, I, I just, a lot of the film centers around this idea that the Mitchell family is this super weird family and they're the only ones who are able to save the world from this robot apocalypse. And I'm just sitting there going like, your family is not that weird. It's like, it, my wife and I were talking about that, this afterwards and it kind of reminded me of like that conversation that everybody seemed to be having about 10 years ago where like, just because you love Star Wars doesn't mean you're a nerd, you know, like that's the, the it, it kind of had a little bit of that vibe to me, like, oh my God, where my little brother loves dinosaurs. Isn't he weird? And like, you're not really that, that's, that's pretty typical, you know? So, um, you know, aside from those nitpicks, which I haven't really seen, there's been so much praise for this movie. So I just wanted to lend my voice to some of those things that I sort of had a problem with. So it just wouldn't be, praise across the board here um for for this film so uh just in case anybody watching it is like i don't i don't know about this i'm a little mixed on this i just wanted to have somebody out there who uh so the those people in the middle maybe didn't feel quite as alone so uh, jacob what did you think about this uh yeah yeah i i think you're not wrong because your opinion is is your is valid but this is my favorite movie of the year so far and i can't imagine like anything topping it this is like a, <laughs> a pretty much a perfect movie that i want to watch constantly over and over again uh i'm not like i said it i'm not gonna say you're wrong because that would be mean i'm not a mean person but i pretty much disagree with everything ben just said uh i think this movie is an absolute delight i think it's impeccably structured i think it walks about a thousand different tight ropes and does so with so much wit grace and and like heart i love how this script is setting up jokes within jokes that pay off both dramatically uh and in and in a humorous context i love how there's not a wasted moment how I paused it 30 minutes in to go get a glass of water and it was, oh, wow, like an entire movie's worth of stuff has already happened in 30 minutes. And, and it, it just is like Spider-Verse before, you know, which the shares producers and Lord Miller, it was just this economy of storytelling, of being able to squeeze so much characterization and, and plot into limited amount of space uh, without making it feel overstuffed. I, I love how it looks. I love how it looks like uh, a 3D watercolor with, with uh, enhanced lines and, and etchings. And I like how the hand-drawn animation comes in to reflect the main character, the teenage daughter's uh, personality. I like how these Lord Miller productions make style part of the substance. I mean, I love Pixar, but Pixar's whole thing is hiding its style a lot of time, putting storytelling first. That's Disney does that too. It's all about the animation just being there to, to to serve these characters in the story, which is great. But Lord Miller's productions and the filmmakers they work with are very much about, yes, but 
we can do things with this medium that you can't do in live action. Let's do let's make sure you see the animation. Let's do things that can only be done with this medium. And you saw it in Spider-Verse, you saw it in the Lego movie, you saw it in Clive Strange's Meatballs, and you see it so much here. Uh, the, the visual imagination here is absolutely incredible. Uh, I think, and also I'll, I'll just talk about a thing that, I, that mattered to me, which is after years of Disney and Pixar queer baiting people saying, this character may be gay. Uh, <laughs> there's a, this movie where it's made clear in the actual text that the teenage daughter character is gay. And, and the, the fact, the fact that her entire worldview uh, at first seems like, seems like, you know, possibly subtext, uh, like, and you feel like this relationship between her and her father feels like, oh, uh, is, is she just weird and him is old-fashioned? And you start to realize that, no, this is a movie about a, a really well-meaning but old-fashioned guy who desperately wants to connect with his gay daughter and does all that in, in the story of a robot apocalypse. And I I think that's really powerful and meaningful. And the fact that it's clear immediately to anybody who's queer and then the film goes out its way at the end to make sure, it, yeah, this wasn't subtext. This is the actual text. Uh it, it does what every other animation studio has has claimed they want to do and haven't, and they make it look easy. And so the ball's in your court now, Disney, because Lord and Miller have, have built a machine that is more visually interesting, funnier, and more upfront and honest about representing what people actually are these days than you have been in a while. So uh, let's see how other people react to this. I think Mitchell's versus the machine, machines is... As close to perfect as Spider-Verse was. So I'll be talking about this movie for a long time and revisiting it very often. Jacob, there's one joke. Do you think it's appropriate for me to ruin one like relatively small joke in this movie, considering that it just came out this past Friday? Or should I just let this go and maybe we'll talk about it some the other time? The movie has 10,000 jokes, so I think it'll be okay. Okay, so, so there's one scene real quick that sort of encapsulates my like um, roller coaster relationship with this movie, and the the villain uh, at one point turns off the world's Wi-Fi, um, f- the Wi-Fi for the entire planet, and everybody around the world just completely loses their minds in really over the top ways, and uh, it cuts to all these different countries and locations, and everybody's reacting the same way, just like completely freaking out in ways that really sort of made me roll my eyes because it felt like oversimplified and just really outdated like again like very 90s and and just like completely out of touch with the with the modern style of humor that goes throughout the rest of this movie but there's a really great joke in that scene where this guy crashes through a window onto a table in a restaurant and he's holding a box and he says something like hey lady can you unbox this in front of me just like the idea that he uh the wi-fi has taken away the thing that he loves most in the world which is just watching unboxing videos on youtube and he is just desperate for anybody to perform that service in front of him as a way to like keep himself going going uh i just found to be a really kind of smart and um and just really really funny moment within a scene that made me roll my eyes a lot i feel like that happened many times over the course of this movie so um yeah i just wanted to uh to to lay that out there and that that's that's sort of my uh that's where i fall a little bit on this movie it's kind of like i i liked it for the most part but there were several um things that sort of held it back from being like a full-blown masterpiece for me i see where you're coming from and for me it's a case of this movie having jokes within jokes within jokes broad jokes subtle jokes character jokes you know jokes that are you know if you don't like the style of humor don't worry there's another joke from a different style of humor coming in 30 seconds Mm -hmm. and i can understand why maybe that collision didn't work for you for me uh for a movie who has a lot of points to make in the end i think about you know family and relationships and relationship technology but I, i think this scene really encapsulates how 
this is a movie about uh, technology and maybe our over-reliance on it that also understands how much fun technology is and understands why we love it. So I think that scene, why it rubbed you the wrong way, those two different jokes represent how you can be of two minds of things. Like you, you love the internet and you hate it. And I, I and to me, I, that's how I read from the film's, you know, collision of styles and ideas. It, it bothered mm-hmm. you, but to me, it felt very much like a very clear message about how they're not, they're not here to judge you for liking, you know, you make for liking YouTube videos, even though we, we can acknowledge it. But sometimes, yes, it's annoying. You get your phone, you get your head stuck in your phone watching YouTube for hours on end. Yeah. Fair enough. Ben, I had to hate to put you on the spot because you were so critical of this. And I know you said you enjoyed it all the same, but mm-hmm. I'm wondering like if you were going to give this film a one out of 10 rating, just because I, I, I want people to get the feel of like where you would actually like, you know, how um, your temperature is of the film because it is very hard to gauge. Yeah, no, I certainly, uh, that's a fair point. Cause I think I was, I was bringing up mostly my complaints here and I, I think I would give it like a, I don't know, like a, seven and a half out of 10 or something like that. I, I liked it quite a bit. Um, I just think that there are, there are several things that didn't fully connect with me, like on a thematic level. And then also, you know, those, those plots things that sort of held it back a little bit for me. Yeah. Um, and I also want to respond to, to Jacob's criticism of Disney, not uh, going full blown um, with the, the whole uh, gay character thing. I do want to bring up, I, I think you are right, Jacob, for the most part, but, Pixar did come out with this film in 2020 called Out. It was a short. It was part of their Spark Shorts program, but it was by this director, uh, Stephen Hunter, and it's very personal, very heartfelt. Uh, I'm not sure if you've seen it. but well, I it have. Was... It's, it's wonderful. Uh, yeah. you're, you're, you're correct, Peter. I should have mentioned Out. But when, when Pixar does this with a lead character in, yeah. a, in a main theatrical release or Disney Plus release feature film, I we can have this conversation, but yeah, yeah, out is absolutely wonderful. That's streaming on Disney plus right now. And I don't want to be like, you know, shorts aren't as important as movies because obviously they, you know, all art is art, but I, I agree with you. They need to do it on the, the big stage. Um, yeah. I mean, I really, I feel like Lord and Miller right now is if the, the animation that they, that they facilitate that they put their names on is as exciting as Pixar was when Pixar was new and exciting. So I really hope this ends up, benefiting everybody I, I would love like this last year we saw pixar make uh soul which I, which I really love but also onward which is just okay uh i would love it if this if seeing missiles versus machines lit a fire under pixar so that all the movies were as good as soul and they didn't like release onwards every couple every year or so fair enough okay i i, I gotta see this uh movie this week i'll i'll I'm definitely going to make that happen. But what what I have been watching is I watched The Bad Batch on Disney+. Plus. This came out yesterday on May the 4th. And this is the animated series set uh, in the Star Wars universe. It's kind of a spinoff of Star Wars The Clone Wars, which I know everybody seems to love. I like it a lot, but I wasn't like, you know, I like Rebels more than Clone Wars. There's just so many like... I know this is like a controversial word, but there's so many filler episodes of Clone Wars that I feel like, you know, when Clone Wars is at its best, it's it's amazing. But there's so much not great. But um, uh, of the last season of Clone Wars, which was amazing, the episodes that I wasn't really as into focused on this group of clone troopers called the Bad Batch. And Disney decided to spin them off in their, into their own series 
And I was, I, I got to admit, I was not excited to watch the show. I was, I actually didn't even plan on watching it. I, I was not like as a star Wars fanatic that, that, that is saying something. I really just had very little interest, but I got sent the screener early and we ran out of like some interesting stuff. And he was like, you know, let's put this on. Let's see what, it, let's see what this is. And it, it, it's really surprising where this, this first episode goes, uh, where, it brings us in the Star Wars timeline, what characters appear, what kind of twists and turns it takes. I'm not saying that this whole show is going to be great. I know Dave Filoni is not as involved as he was, obviously, with the Clone Wars. So I am a little skeptical of if it can keep up to what it was in this first pilot episode. It's like a, a two episodes, like a double episode. But I would encourage you, if, if this is something that you totally were not excited about give that first episode a try because i think it's i think it has the potential to be something good but um oh i also i think i mentioned a few weeks back that i watched the first couple episodes of mighty ducks game changers actually i think i only watched the first episode and brad had watched many more at the time and i have since caught up to I think uh, I didn't see the most recent, but I saw everything before that, whatever that is, like six episodes or seven episodes. Um, and I, I will say that the first couple episodes have potential, but like don't quite like reach the level of the Mighty Ducks movies. I do think that this show does pick up. It, it, it like I, I, I'm invested now. Um, Three episodes in, there's a real turning point, and I, I feel like I actually care about this team. Uh, the show really captures the urge to want to root for the underdogs, and, uh, you know, two-thirds of the way through the season, it's been promoted, you know, all over by Disney, but the original Mighty Ducks make an appearance on this, and which was a fun reunion. Um, Brad, have you caught up with this show, Mighty Ducks Game Changers? Are you, you feeling any better about it? Cause I know you were like very on the line of not sure if you liked it or not. Uh, I wasn't, I wouldn't say that I was on the line. I had some complaints about it, but I thought that it was, it was decent and it had potential to grow uh, into something. And I think that, um, cause I saw the first three episodes for that review. And then I think that, like you just said, it really starts to come into its own with episodes four through six, leading up to episode six being when the uh, original Mighty Ducks come back for, a reunion. And I think that it's really starting to feel more like a Mighty Ducks movie that's been stretched out into a series rather than something that was is felt a little a little closer to Disney Channel, though not quite as hokey or cheesy. Um, because what I what I appreciate about the um, last weekend's episode that had the reunion is that it it really put some drama into it. It wasn't just this normal happy go lucky reunion of like, oh let's all reminisce and everything. You know, there was uh, an arc for Gordon Bombay and there was some tension between him and the team. And there's a tease as to something not being quite right between Bombay and Charlie Conway, Joshua Jackson's character from the original franchise. Um, and so, yeah, I, I'm really liking where this series is going. Um, I, I actually have screeners for the next four episodes for, through the end of the first season that I haven't gotten around to watching yet. Um, so I'm sure I'll talk about those, you know, um, once I'm allowed to in the near future, but uh, yeah, I, I'm really enjoying this. And um, on a, a slash film note, I interviewed 
uh, the six original Mighty Ducks who appear in the, in the reunion episode and also uh, original franchise writer Stephen Brill, who directed that episode and also is a writer on the show. So be sure to check those out. Yeah. It is kind of funny that when they appear, they, they look almost nothing like what they did as kids. I mean, as most adults do. So they kind of had to have like photos of them on the wall to be like, look, that's me. So oh, I, to- I totally disagree. I feel like they look exactly like they really? did as kids. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know, but okay. Maybe it's, I haven't seen Mighty Ducks in the longest time, but uh, there was one last thing I want to talk about. And this is a movie that's on Amazon Prime. I think it's a, a an original there, or it's exclusive to there. It's called The Map of Tiny Perfect Things. I don't think anybody on here has talked about this film. Ha- has anybody seen this? Sounds like no. Okay. Uh, that that is I've been greeted by the silence of nobody seeing this. Uh, this movie is it was recommended to me by quite a few people, and I gotta admit I, it's gone by the wayside. I have not seen anybody talking about this movie. I I think I did a search on Slash Film, and I think we covered a trailer or something. But it's really like we did. Is that that movie with Billy Reinhardt? Am I getting it wrong? It's like a weepy of some kind. A weepy? What does weepy mean? Oh, like, you know, uh, a walk to remember, a kind of sad romance. Uh, it is a coming-of-age movie, but I don't... Lily Ryan, who's Lily Reinhardt? I don't know. Okay, I'm just mistaking it for something no. else. Never mind. Oh, is it the time travel one, Peter? Yeah, it's a time, loop, time one? loop movie, yes. Oh. Okay. It's like, it's, okay like, so, it's like Teen Palm Springs. Yes. Okay, so th- this movie feels to me like something I would see at Sundance and fall in love. It's like a coming-of-age, time loop movie and it stars these two people kyle allen who i think is in the upcoming west side story and maybe american horror story or something um and katherine newton who what is she in she's been in freaky 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 and blockers big little lies pokemon or detective pikachu yeah okay so she's in a bunch of stuff um and the the pitch of this is it's a time loop movie and we've seen time loop movies. This is it it, it is it it's basically Palm Springs, <laughs> okay. Uh, but I will say, and I think that's probably one of the reasons why this hasn't gotten any play is this is kind of the same thing where it's not just one person but two people stuck in the same time loop in the same place, reliving the same day over and over again which is very Palm Springs and Palm Springs is a better movie on every level. So I'm not going to say that this is better than Palm Springs. And I think many people would probably see this movie and be like, Oh, this is a copy of Palm Springs, even though this was written as a short story in 2016 by this guy named Lev Grossman, who is, uh, I haven't followed his work, but he's the author behind, uh, the very successful, the magicians, which was turned into a sci-fi TV series. Anyways. Um, the, the pitch behind this, I think, is that you have two teenagers stuck in this in this world, the small town world, live, reliving this one day over and over again. And as the movie begins, they've already reached God level. They're already Bill Murray at the end of Groundhog Day, where they know everything that's going to happen and are able to use that to their advantage or disadvantage. And, uh, you know, the, the opening has like this really fun one take or 
is presented as one take. I'm not sure if it's actually shot as one take where the, the lead character like knows everything that's going to happen throughout this town square and is like dodging and weaving and doing all the stuff. I don't know. It's a lot of fun. I I, I was going to recommend it to HT because it has a couple of doctor who references, which I didn't understand because. Oh, okay. Who. Maybe I will watch it then. <laughs> but, uh, it references time bands, time bandits it actually also references groundhog day and edge of tomorrow. So it's a world where, time loop movies already exist um and they i don't know i i had fun it's it is a little like formulaic and you know where it's gonna go and stuff like that but it does have some interesting twists as well uh but i i don't know i feel like this is a movie that's not on many people's radar and everybody probably has amazon prime or most people do i would say check it out it's called the the map of tiny perfect things and uh, you can see it there. Okay, uh, Brad, what have you been watching? Uh, I took the time to watch Without Remorse, uh, which is the new Michael B. Jordan movie uh, that's based on Tom Clancy's novel of the same name. Um, it is on Amazon Prime. It was a Paramount Pictures movie, but then Amazon picked it up from them. Um, and it's just kind of there. Uh, it's, it's very bland. I mean... It's not as if Tom Clancy is the most exciting writer to begin with, but, you know, Clear and Present Danger and Patriot Games are, are solid, as is uh, The Hunt for Red October. But, you know, like, Some of All Fears is not great, and Jack Ryan Shadow Recruit is one of the most boring things I've ever seen in my entire life. And while the, the action in this movie is very uh, technically impressive, and they do some pretty cool things with long uh, single-take sequences and... and uh, moments and Michael B. Jordan and Jamie Bell are both um, good in their roles. The movie itself just feels like it's following um, a formula. Um, it's very bland and predictable, and there aren't any like peaks where things rise in, in excitement or thrills or um, anything like that. It's just pretty much on cruise control the the entire way through, just just coasting. Um, it, there's nothing unexpected here, what what's, whatsoever. Nothing surprising. And I just, yeah, it feels like it's trying to emulate certain kinds of action movies from, from the nineties. Um, but not in a way that feels like it has any real style or, or substance to it. So I walked away just feeling disappointed, like, like almost like I, uh, like I ate a piece of styrofoam. It just, there's just like no flavor or, or anything like that. So, um, yeah, bit, bit of, bit of a bummer. I, I hope that they, figure out a way to give Michael B. Jordan something better to do as a, as a leading man. And um, obviously Creed is a good showcase for him. And I'm, I'm glad that he's going to be directing uh, the third one. Um, but when it comes to movies like this, I just hope that someone can give him something better to do in the future. Cause this unfortunately uh, isn't, isn't it. Um, I also watched uh, a new horror movie on Netflix called Things Heard and Seen. Uh, it stars Amanda Seyfried, and uh, this one also was supremely disappointing. Another thing where it just feels like it's a paint-by-numbers horror movie where uh, a, f a family who's having some issues moves to a, um, a new house in, um, in the countryside, and they each have like problems with each other and then they, they each have secrets that they keep from each other and then there's these spirits in the house but the spirits don't really end up uh having much of an impact on 
what happens with the story and it just doesn't take uh, any compelling turns or have any truly scary moments. And the ending is absolutely baffling and terrible and just doesn't make it make, make any sense. It just feels like it just sputters out. And I was just very upset that I, I wasted my time for something that I hoped would offer um, a little bit of, uh, of terror, but it just was boring and bland. <laughs> um, and continuing my streak of things that were <laughs> relatively disappointing, I watched Mortal Kombat on HBO Max. Um, and the action and fight sequences in this movie are very well done. Spectac- spectacular even. Um, it's, it's nice to see that they, you know, had a, a real budget for this movie. That they really put some effort into making the sequences um, actually feel like they had, you know, much more legitimate martial arts and fighting styles. But I found myself frustrated by, you know, this is something that Chris has talked about before, is that it's it's a movie that is very clearly trying to set up an entire franchise and doing all this heavy lifting and promising things that are coming in the future without thinking about how to make this movie good on its own. Um, you know, I on one level, I like what it does with the Mortal Kombat uh, mythos. I don't, I don't mind that they, it kind of steers away from some of the elements of the video games um, because as you know, rich as the mythology of the video game franchise has become since the first game, it's not something that I particularly uh, care about. And I think that it's, it's kind of hard to dig into that much detail without doing like a full-blown uh big budget tv series um but i also just like it felt like they were trying to do too much to make characters matter when the big focus you know of something like this is like uh let's have them fight and there's a fight tournament um which we don't even get to in this movie and so it's uh it was one of those things where i just like i like what they went for but i feel like the the end product didn't exactly land as firmly as I, as I hope. So I, I wasn't bored in the movie, but after just watching and thinking about, you know, what it tried to do, I just feel like, feel like it didn't quite measure up to the, those, those hopes. So fun action, but uh, whatever as, you know, a whole movie. So it sounds like you were three for three. Yeah. I, I struck out. So I'm not watching <laughs> movies ever again. <laughs> I mean, that's the the right takeaway there, right? <laughs> Chris, what have you been watching? Uh, I just watched um, In the Heights, which is, of course, the new uh, John M. Chu movie uh, based on the Lin-Manuel Miranda uh, Broadway musical. And it was good. <laughs> I, it was good, not great. Um, Wait, I have while. a question before you start. Like, have you had you seen the musical or no? I've heard the music. I've, I've listened to the soundtrack, but I actually haven't seen this one performed live. So, um, uh, you know, the social reaction has lifted. So let's count that as this: the review embargo is still going on. And when the social embargo lifts, everyone was really super, super positive, and I was like, "Oh man, this is going to be great!" And I, I didn't love it i mean it the, the the songs are great and the cast is is phenomenal across the board everyone is doing really good work here uh i think the problem i had with it is uh, john m chu even though he does some really cool inventive stuff like there's a there's a dance sequence that's like on the side of a building and that's really neat 
a lot of the musical numbers are shot in this sort of like medium close-up where you just see people like walking down a street and it it's just kind of like boring like i I just feel like if you're gonna make a musical like this go go all out make it sort of like uh you know just i i should be able to see more than people from the waist up walking down the street i don't know another problem i had with it is it's it's just too long it's like 144 minutes and you know hamilton is long too but hamilton the difference is hamilton is a completely sung through musical where there's no dialogue it's just all music from beginning to end and in the heights isn't like that there's actually a lot of dialogue in this and every time the movie stops a musical number to have dialogue the movie just drags i was like man i just wish they would get back to to singing because i really like these songs um but beyond that you know it's it's a it's an entertaining movie it's it's you know i i didn't hate it i wasn't like oh what a waste of time but i was i don't know i the the very strong hype that came from that social media reaction a few weeks ago really set me up for something better than this was. But uh, beyond that, I, I feel, I feel like people will like the movie in general, just because it's a very upbeat, you know, positive. Uh, uh, I don't, you know, there, there's dramatic things in it, so I don't want to call it like a happy go lucky movie, but uh, I do think it's like a, a sort of a feel good sort of film. So people will enjoy it, but I don't know. I wanted something a little bit more than what I got. Well, that's disappointing. Yeah. Um, on the other side of the coin, I finally watched The Father, which is, of course, the the Anthony Hopkins movie that uh, made uh, a lot of headlines at the Oscars kind of all for all the wrong reasons, because everyone was assuming Chadwick Boseman was going to win Best Actor, and then Anthony Hopkins won, and it sort of left a, a bad taste in everyone's mouth. Um, and I am fucking kicking myself for not watching this sooner because if I had watched it last year or, you know, at the end of last year, this absolutely would have been in my top 10 movies of the year. This movie is phenomenal. It's, it's just uh, emotional and uh, incredibly well edited the whole movie. Um, it's about uh, Anthony Hopkins character. He has uh, Alzheimer's and, but the entire movie is, is done from his point of view. And as a result, like everything, everything he keeps experiencing and by extension, everything we keep experiencing keeps changing and you can't really get a hold on what's really happening when and when it's happening. And the way they edit this all together is, is incredible. It's, it's almost like a horror movie because you know, you're, you're constantly on edge because you know, the main character is, doesn't really understand what's going on and you just keep waiting for the next uh, confusing or unexplained thing to happen and throw you know the balance of the movie off. And the work Anthony Hopkins does here is phenomenal. I, I completely understand why they gave him uh, that Oscar. You know, Chadwick Boseman was great too in Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, but the the stuff Anthony Hopkins is doing here is is like some of the best acting I ever I've ever seen from him. And you know that's saying a lot because he's a great actor in general, but. This is like one of the best performances of his career. So I, I can't recommend The Father enough. I, I know a lot of people just sort of avoided it in general because it just seemed like, you know, generic Oscar bait movie. And it's really not. It's it's so much better than that. Uh, so I, I really encourage you to, to seek this out. And then finally, I started watching Warrior, which is a, it used to be a um, Cinemax show or Max Go, but they, they moved it to HBO Max. 
And I had been hearing people talk about this. And after you know, the disappointment of Mortal Kombat, I was like, man, I want to watch something with fights that's good. And that is this show. Uh, uh, you know, you know, there are a lot of shows now in, in our, our peak TV era where people are like, you got to stick with it. You know, watch, watch the first three or four episodes, then it gets good. And this is, this is the opposite of that because this is good. Like from the get go, it's just really, uh, well-made and the, the fights are fucking incredible. And the action is great. Um, plot wise, it's not like the most original thing in the world, but that doesn't matter. It's, it's basically, it's kind of like Deadwood meets Peaky Blinders, but with martial arts. So if that sounds like something you want to watch, I, I really recommend this. This is, uh, it just kicks ass. The, the first two seasons are now on HBO max and there's a third season that's coming soon eventually. So if you're looking for, um, you know, really cool fight scenes please watch warrior because it, it, it delivers. Yeah. I've heard a lot of people say that this is a good show, but just no one was watching it because it was only available on what, like Cinemax or something. Yeah. They just yeah. recently moved it to HBO max. And uh, so I, uh, it's definitely worth checking out. Okay. Jacob, what have you been watching? Uh, I've been watching mystery men or rather I watched mystery men, the 1999 superhero comedy parody. It's, I haven't seen it in a little while and it's a very strange film to revisit because it is simultaneously a film of its time, but also a film about 20 years too early uh, because it is this combination of everybody who was, you know, hot in the late nineties <laughs> in one movie. It's like uh, Ben Stiller right before he was, you know, about to be- become really huge. It's uh Janine Garofalo back when she was extremely relevant. William H. Macy back when he was, his post Fargo lap of like starring in a lot of movies. Uh, Greg Kinnear back before Greg Kinnear was shuttled off to direct a video faith-based movies. It is all these huge names in this extremely expensive looking superhero comedy. And in even smash melts, all stars, if they even suck, which immediately pegs it to 1999. And there's stuff in this movie that's really interesting. It, it, it has, it really have its time look at superheroes in that there is the the character put by Greg Kinnear, who's a sort of Superman Batman figure who is very much a homelander from the boys before the boys with a TV show. And it has this sort of uh, uh, winking evisceration of the entire superhero genre before that was so on the present back when it was, you know, only a handful of movies and stuff that was regularly happening. Uh, but it's also frequently really bad <laughs> in Paul Rubens, character, who's a superhero whose powers he farts really effectively is one of the unfunniest things I've ever seen committed to in a big screen comedy like this. Uh, but there also are things I think are genius, like William H. Macy's character, who is whose superpowers he's good at wielding a shovel, which is inherently funny to me. Uh, it is just this, if you read about the production of it, apparently the cast had not get along. They were constantly fighting over the tone of the movie. Nobody could agree on what the film should should feel like. You can really see the chaos in the film. And the chaos sometimes works and sometimes really doesn't. It's a film that's so, so clever, but also very clever without being funny. And very expensive while also looking cheap. And I feel like there's another version of this film that came out in 2020 instead of 1999. And it would have been a big deal. People would have gotten the joke a lot more than, than they got in 1999 where the film was a huge bomb. So a film that is far from perfect, frequently bad, but also I think had its eye on the prize, its eye on the ball more so than a lot of other movies uh, may today do. Uh, 
I'm just curious about the, the crew here. Where do we all fall on Mystery Men these days? Uh, I remember not liking it, but I agree with you. If James Gunn made it today, it would be awesome. Yeah, I think you're right. There's a, the, the right filmmaker with this with this tone. I think, oh man, I, I think you're right. I think James Gunn with these characters would have knocked out of the park. Uh, ben, I, I you surely you've seen Mystery Men, Ben. I saw it in theaters when I was about 14 and I hated it at the time because I didn't understand it. Um, but listening to you talk about it now makes me feel like I kind of want to rewatch it just to, so I can like fully understand what it is. But I also I'm fighting against my own memories of it being like not quite as funny as I wanted, even, you know, e- even taking the, the satire element away. Like I don't remember the comedy being great. And, and the fact that it came out, what, 21 years ago now means that I don't know if it's going to hold up comedically super well. So it doesn't, like, I won't it even, doesn't. Yeah, so I, I won't be able to enjoy it on that level. So it would basically just be an intellectual exercise for me to revisit it at this point. And I don't know if I'm willing to do that, but uh, I'm glad that you had the experience that you did. Yeah, I mean, it's if you watched this in 1999 or you skipped 99, but you remember it, it is such a time capsule. It is, it is a superhero parody that's looking at the entire genre, but it's very much stylized around you know Tim Burton and Joel Schumacher. And I just feel like its ambitions are so much bigger than what the genre could have given it at the time. And if they could just edit out Paul Rubens' character, <laughs> I feel like the movie gets better already. Uh, okay, uh, that's enough of Mystery Man. Unless anybody else has any scintillating thoughts on Mystery Man, a movie out of, like Unbreakable, I think it arrived about 15, 20 years too early for people to really appreciate it. Um, but Unbreakable is a much better movie like in every possible way, so I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll leave that there. Uh, speaking of things from 1999, I started rewatching Sopranos. My wife hasn't seen it, and uh, you know, I guess a hot take, Sopranos is a great show. <laughs> it, it's funny because the, the pilot episode, which was produced a year before the, the rest of the season was uh, picked up and, and, and filmed, it feels a little off. If you've seen all Sopranos, the pilot is like, oh, was this how the show always felt? Then you watch episode two and it's like, oh yeah, that's the show. Uh, but, you know, it's all streaming on HBO Max these days and Sopranos, I feel like it's not, this hasn't been buried. People have not forgotten the Sopranos, but this is a show that kicked off, you know, the golden age of TV. It, like the, All of our modern shows would not exist without Sopranos. And it's remarkable that a, a show that is a foundational piece of pop culture history uh, has held up as well as it has. I mean, the modern discourse may not be kind to it because it's a show that asks you to really empathize with genuinely terrible people. And uh, I've always liked shows that challenge me in that way. And I think The Sopranos is one of the greatest TV shows ever made. And I'm happy to be visiting and remembering why. Uh, it's great. It's like, if you've been putting it off just because it's, you know, 20 years old and you feel like there's other shows to watch in the age of peak TV, stop it. Because Sopranos is still more than worth your time. Okay. And let's move on to each or Ben. Ben, what have you been watching? Uh, well, my wife and I finished watching. We're completely caught up now with Curb Your Enthusiasm. And uh, after we finished the show, I realized that this whole show started from an HBO special that came out in 1999. Wow, continuing the 1999 trend that Jacob just uh, laid down there. Um, so yeah, it, it's uh, it's basically just a long episode of the show i think it's like an hour long or something and and the show is only 30 minutes if i remember right and um you it's it's like the the quality difference uh you know going from something that was filmed in 
I think 20, let's see, 2017 was the most recent season. No, actually last year, sorry, was the uh, the most recent um, season of the show. So going from something that was filmed in 2020 to something that was filmed in 1999, just the digital camera technology, like the quality of the thing is just so terrible. Like it looks like trash. Um, but the humor and the, the, um, the foundations for what the show would become are very, very evident uh, in this special. So it's sort of just, yeah, I was talking about like an intellectual exercise earlier. It's, it's just sort of a fascinating thing to like go back and watch the show and think about it as a launch pad for what would become uh, Curb Your Enthusiasm, which I think is like one of the funniest uh, and certainly most long running um, American comedies maybe ever. So uh, it, it is very, very, um, I'm not going to say that it's like as great as like, some of my favorite episodes of the show, but it's a really interesting thing to watch if you're a fan of, uh, of Curb and you've never watched the original special that's streaming on HBO Max right now. And then the only other thing that I've been watching that I wanted to mention here is a 1954 movie called Brigadoon. Has anybody else here seen this movie by any chance? Nobody. Okay. So this film was directed by uh, Vincent Minnelli and it stars Gene Kelly and Sid Charisse and Van Johnson. And I'll read you the uh, IMDb uh, description here. Two Americans on a hunting trip in Scotland become lost. They encounter a small village, not on the map, called Brigadoon, in which people harbor a mysterious secret and behave as if they were still living 200 years in the past. So it is a, a cinemascope, huge, uh, bright, brightly colored movie. I think... Um, I want to say MGM was the uh, the studio that released this, and it is just um, you know lush colors and uh, ridiculous dance numbers and like everything that you could want from you know a, a big musical of this time period. Um, I, I enjoyed it a lot. the The premise is like a little silly. It's like these two, like I just read, like these two guys basically stumble upon this village that um, I guess the the IMDb seems to be. <laughs> shielding the the actual premise a little bit but the the gist is they stumble onto this village that only appears every 100 years and uh i have a lot of questions about the logistics of exactly how that works and how these townspeople uh operate and and all of that stuff but you know putting the uh the nitpicking aside it's a really really fun movie um and i really uh, recently just found out that there's a show on Apple TV Plus, or it is, it's coming to Apple TV Plus very soon, called Schmigadoon, which I guess is like a riff on mm. on this show that stars uh, Cecily Strong and Keegan-Michael uh, Keegan Key. And they play a couple who stumbles onto a town where everybody acts like it's a 1940s musical all the time. So uh, having seen this movie um, and, and being certain that they're going to be you know, overt references to it. Uh, I, I feel like Schmigadoon is going to be a lot of fun. So um, maybe uh, consider it a little homework if if, uh, <laughs> if that show sounds like fun to you. So um, yeah, Brigadoon is not streaming anywhere right now, but you can uh, rent it from, um, you know, Amazon and YouTube and all the different places for like three bucks if you want to check it out. Okay. HT, what have you been watching? I watched I Saw the Devil, which is the South Korean... Um, thriller film by Kim Ji-Woon, uh, directed by Kim Ji-Woon. He's the director of A Tale of Two Sisters. And um, I think 
Jacob had recommended me this after I watched A Tale of Two Sisters and was uh, very struck and terrified by that movie. Um, and I Saw the Devil is uh, stars Lee Byung-hung and Choi Min-sik. Choi Min-sik is of old boy fame um, as in this sort of serial killer film in which uh, Lee Byung-hung is uh, an, like a special agent whose fiance is brutally murdered by um, Choi Min-sik's serial killer. And um, it's... Um, it's brutal. It's a very brutal and uh, unflinching and violent movie. Uh, it's. I also, while I was watching this, it just made me wonder how many serial killers are living in this one area of South Korea that is just kind of like this rural area uh, outside of Seoul because at least five serial killers pop up in this movie. And I found it a little ridiculous at one point. But um, yeah, the... The gore and the the violence in this are definitely shocking, um, and um, I just didn't find it. But I didn't find it as emotionally interesting as uh, some other like Korean revenge films or even serial serial killer films. It just felt very much like revenge flick. Uh, men are awful, and all men are prone to becoming evil monsters, and women are also prone to having the two lines at most, and then being savagely. Uh, eviscerated so it's it's fine it's good um i feel like J- i'm like breaking jacob's heart a little bit because no you're, you're not wrong I, I i do think that it's, it's definitely by the time the fifth serial killer shows up you realize i saw devil is a fantasy movie this weird gonzo <laughs> fantasia of south korean violence and revenge and you're you're not incorrect about where kim ji woon's uh focus is and is not but this is one of my favorite movies because it is just such a gonzo trip it is the revengiest revenge movie of all time there's revenge within revenge within revenge and i saw the devil it goes to such dark depraved places and i was prepared to fall down that pit with it yes it definitely is that i can't say it's as much my cup of tea just because by the time the like third or fourth um big chase slash evisceration scene comes around i'm like all right i get the point but uh <laughs> uh it's, it's you know it's it's definitely worth a watch if you are looking for the revengiest of revenge films and it's streaming now on amazon video okay let's move on to what we've been eating brad what have you been eating this week just one new thing um joining the fruity pebbles candy bar that i talked about a while back um, there is now a Cocoa Pebbles candy bar. Uh, this one isn't quite as impressive simply because the combination of white chocolate with Fruity Pebbles gave such a, a fantastic flavor that it was going to be hard to top. Um, this one is, uh, it's a, it's a decent enough chocolate bar. I don't think the chocolate is quite as good as it could be, but, um, I like having Cocoa Pebbles, uh, inside of a, a chocolate bar. Um, it's not quite as, uh, I guess tough as, some other uh, candy bars that have um, like crispy crispy rice in them, um, like a like the or well, like the the one that I talked about not too long ago, the the Hoosie What's It, um, and there's there's another one that has like uh, rice pieces in it that's like it's a little bit tougher. And I think it's because there's peanut butter and I can't remember what it is right now. But uh, this it's a thin candy bar and it's just um, you know cocoa pebbles sprinkled throughout and so it's uh it's got a good crunch to it but i just i just wish the chocolate itself was a little bit higher quality to make the overall candy bar better but it's it's okay brad i do need to ask a a, you know a cereal and food connoisseur like yourself what is the best chocolate cereal is it cocoa pebbles is it cocoa puffs is it 
Um, there's like chocolate frosted flakes. There's Oreo uh, cereal. There's there's a bunch, right? Yeah. If if we're talking just strictly chocolate cereal, I think it's Cocoa Puffs, hands down. Yeah, that was um, my favorite as a kid. I used to love putting milk in it. I I didn't like eating cereal with milk as a kid but i liked it with cocoa puffs because it would turn the milk into chocolate milk yeah and unlike a lot of other chocolate cereals the chocolate milk that you get from cocoa puffs is usually pretty dang good um so that's why i think it's cocoa puffs um and then on on a side note i think reese's peanut butter puffs also is pretty solid with the mixture of peanut butter and chocolate so there you go. i haven't tried that yet you've never had reese's peanut butter puffs no it's been around forever. How have you not, tr- Peter? It's like I, it's like I one of the know. best cereals ever made. <laughs> yeah, it's the best. It's the best sugary cereal ever made, Peter. This is a mistake you need to rectify. I just love that. Like, at some point in the seventies or eighties, we thought it was a good idea to eat chocolate for breakfast. <laughs> I don't know. It just doesn't seem like you could launch that today. Like now, it's accepted. You know, cereal and chocolate or chocolate and cereal is an accepted form of breakfast. But I, I feel like if you tried to launch that today, the, the health food fanatics would be like, I mean, don't donuts are, are still, you know, a staple, too. Yeah. And the, you know, so. What about Nutella, Peter? I mean, sorry, I'm not like a huge fan of, of even yeah. sweet on at breakfast, but I love me some Nutella. <laughs> yeah, I like Nutella. Okay. I have nothing right. Hey, I'm not criticizing. I love Cocoa Puffs. I'm just saying it. I don't know. I feel like I'm I'm surprised, you know, when everybody took the pitchforks to the supersize um, meal at McDonald's that the, you know, the chocolate cereals didn't get like wasted on the, the, in the landscape of, of cereals, but whatever. Okay. uh, Let's move on to what we've been playing. Jacob, what have you been playing? I've been playing the new PlayStation 5 game Returnal. It's a, Big release. It's the first PS5 game in a number of months since the console launch. So it's been a lot of people playing older games and PlayStation 5s waiting for something new to come. And this is the big new Sony exclusive release. And Returnal is a, a time loop game where you play as a, an astronaut, a space explorer in the future who crash lands on an alien planet uh, and starts exploring it. And you die horribly uh, about 10 minutes in your, into the game. Then you reset. Your, your ship crashes again and you start over again. And each time you retain some of what you got in the first run but you lose most of it it's 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 a game it's a game design called a a roguelike where you do a series of runs you try to get as far as you can into the game until you die then you start over again and that means like if you're really amazingly good at it you can probably beat it in like you know two hours but otherwise most of the game is you you know live dying repeating (laughs) as your character retains memories and some experience and some weapons but uh, otherwise, you know, things reset to zero every time you try. Uh, so it's, it's a game about uh, getting good, about <laughs> about uh, going through this alien planet, which resets every time you play, so it gets randomly regenerated, and trying to get a great run, trying to find the right equipment, find find the right uh, path, uh, find the right upgrades that will either be temporary or permanent. And it's really beautiful. It is an incredible-looking game. It looks like Prometheus. If Prometheus was an action game, it would look like this. Mm-hmm. And it's very challenging. Uh, yeah, it is. It's not holding your hand, but in, in a way that I found really fun and and kind of encourages you to you know really engage with it, try to learn what you're doing. It, it, like I said, I'll go back to Enter Tomorrow again. It very much is in that same style of, okay, you died, but what did you learn? Okay, you 
this time I learned, oh, don't go left. You should go right here. Or I learned this gun does this. Well, this gun does that. I learned that I should definitely skip this part if I see it. I'm not ready for it. And there have been a lot of roguelike games, you know, made by indie developers where they're much smaller experiences. But this is the first time that I can recall where a run-based game like this was a massively expensive PlayStation 5 game that looked this gorgeous and had this much storytelling going on. And, you know, this is not a game for everybody. If you you don't like the idea of spending two hours in a video game and dying and then having to reset back to the beginning, this is not for you. Uh, But if you can appreciate the experience of what that kind of style of game is and understand uh, that losing, learning, and repeating is the appeal, uh, Returnal is very much the next generation game. It feels like that concept taken to what a PlayStation 5 can do. I mean, also just a, a side note on the controller. There's been a lot written about the PlayStation 5 controller, which is amazing. Uh, it just feels different the way it, it, it's, it's a thing called haptic feedback, where it just gives you sensations uh, that you don't feel from previous controllers. Like, for example, in Returnal, you're firing a machine gun an alien, and you hold down the uh, one, one of the trigger buttons to fire it. In a lot of other video games, you'll have a secondary fire option. Like, you know, you fire your machine gun this way, then you hit a button to switch firing modes to fire in a different way. Whereas in Returnal, the controller has mechanisms in it so that when you hold down the trigger, you'll fire normally, but it only lets you hold down the trigger halfway. Like literally the controller offers a brick wall of resistance so you can only hold it down halfway. But then if you push through the resistance by putting a little bit of effort, you overpower it essentially and switch to your different firing modes. So instead of having to push a button to switch firing modes, you got to apply pressure on triggers in different ways, uh, which ends up feeling amazing. Like, I've never played a game that felt like this. And the way that it uses the controller technology, the haptic feedback, to have the physical sensation of pushing buttons in different ways be a vital part of playing the game is absolutely incredible. So uh, like I said, I would definitely watch some videos about Returnal and read some reviews and make sure it's for you. But if you like challenging science fiction games and if you know what the phrase rogue- roguelike even means, this is definitely a video game you should be checking out if you're fortunate enough to have a PlayStation 5 right now. I love how we've come full circle, Jacob. And, you know, when I used to play video games, you know, when it was arcades or NES or Atari, like there there were no save points in the beginning. And that was like a criticism but now like that's the the concept yeah it's like i said some people really want that safety net i totally get it i mean there's been some criticism online about returnal about how it doesn't have an autosave feature so if you if your system crashes mid-run you're shit out of luck and i get that uh and i, th- I think I hopefully working on a fix to prevent that from happening to people it hasn't happened to me yet uh but at the same time though there's something to be said about getting on a great run getting all the best weapons getting all the best upgrades and getting deep and deep and deep into the game and then dying and waking back up in the, at the beginning of the time loop without all of your equipment, but also realizing that, oh, one of the upgrades I did get was permanent. So even though I died, this one little thing is still with me forever now. And it's a really good feeling, <laughs> one that I treasure a lot in games like this. Okay, we've reached the end of today's Slash Film Daily. You can find more of all of our work at SlashFilm.com. You can find this podcast on Apple, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please feel free to send us your feedback, questions, comments, concerns to us at peter at And please head on over to our Apple's podcast page. Write us a sentence of why you like this podcast. Give us five stars. It really helps us quite a bit. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you tomorrow. Hey, Peter, you weren't here last week for the gargantuan book of insult, offense, and affrontery. Sharp retorts, repost, yeah. cost, equips, implied put-downs by Louis A. Safian.
I dodged well, the bullet. Yeah, well, no, it means you get, you, you get triple the insults today, Peter. Um, Wait, that doesn't add up. It's, it should be like double. Peter, I got to punish you, like, to make sure it doesn't happen again. Okay, uh, I vote <laughs> page 146, old fogies. Old fogies. Chris, he considers, sorry, not Chris. This is Peter. I'll get to Chris in a second. Peter. Peter considers a 10 p.m. TV program the Late Late Show. Hmm. Uh, I mean, that is... Wait, what? <laughs> Peter <laughs> considers a 10 p.m. TV program the Late Late Show. Wait, Brad, when does the Late Late Show... The Late, the late, late Late Show is usually on at 11.30. Oh, so it's not that far off, Jacob. Peter considers a 10 p.m. TV program <laughs> the Late Late Show. Uh, Peter... He's chock full of pep for an hour or two a day. Because you're old. I can relate to a lot of these. Yeah. Peter, he's done long before the day is. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Okay. Peter goes three. Uh, Chris, it's taking Chris longer to rest than to get tired. Oh. Yeah. Uh, ben, Ben Pearson, he putters around the garden and mutters around the house. Love to putter. <laughs> uh, HT, the hardest thing for her uh, is uh, to raise in her garden are her knees. Ah. Oh. I like that there were two garden jokes in her. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, hope you're ready for a third one because Brad, the only thing he grows in his garden is tired. <laughs> <laughs> Seems like Louis A. Safian didn't really like gardening. I think yeah. these jokes were a lot of these jokes were were written at a time when there wasn't a TV, so like all people had to do was watch their gardens. <laughs> Sounds like a nice he's life, like, honestly. I mean, he's like looking out of his window. He's like, "Where can I set this next joke? Uh, a garden? Ah, yes." There's a real Great Depression era vibe to this page, including uh, when when he turns out the light is for economy instead of romance because you know saving money. <laughs> wow, yeah, that's tinge of sadness to that one practical baseball fans bet mgm is giving you the chance to win a prize every day during the baseball season step into the batter's box for bet mgm swing for the fences free to play game pick any area of the strike zone and take your best swing if you get a single double triple or home run you'll receive a prize smash a home run to collect a bonus bet on us just log into your bet mgm sports account to get started then visit your promotion section to access the swing for the fences free to play game you'll score a prize if you hit a single double triple or home run there's nothing more exciting than going yard so swing for the fences with the king of sports books bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly must be 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards vary depending on the market and expire 24 hours from issuance gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER and partnership with mgm northfield park 